0: Hey, deserving listeners, this episode is part two in which I respond to your questions about abuse. So let's get into it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. You might want to listen to episode one before you listen to this one, because I'm going to assume that you heard that. And just right from the start, if you know anyone who is suffering from abuse or you're suffering from abuse yourself, you can certainly call 911 or the authorities, but you can also go online and contact the Domestic Violence Hotline or the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It's just called thehotline.org. And so you want to go there for help and guidance, and they might be able to set you up with professionals in your area. All right. Movie Zoomer Heather, she has a question here from the fan page. I imagine that all abuse is traumatic, but not all traumas are abusive. So this is an interesting, and she goes on to add other questions, but I just want to Sort of address this first sentence here. I imagine that all abuse is traumatic, but not all traumas are abusive. All right. So first, let's define what is abuse and what is what is trauma. We talked a lot about that in the last episode, but maybe it you know it's, we should revisit that and also maybe expand it a little bit. All right, so what is abuse? Let's talk about you know what is abuse? Is it a pattern of control? That's what we talked about a lot last episode, a pattern of intimate partner violence or domestic violence, a pattern of control and power and breaking someone down, uh, doing all sorts of things to establish control over the other person, including getting into the mind of the victim. Is that what abuse is? Okay. Yeah, certainly that is abuse, but there are other usages for the term abuse. Could a parent do something abusive once? and not have it be a pattern? Yes, they could commit an abusive act. Could a coworker that you barely interact with abuse you? Yeah, probably, right? Are we talking about harmful behavior? So is it, do we need a pattern to be present, or could it be a one-time event, a one-time harmful behavior? Or do we need long-lasting effects? Because let's look at one event, where a parent uses corporal punishment on a child. Is it abuse or is it not abuse? Hard to say. Is it only abuse if there are long-lasting negative effects from the behavior of using corporal punishment? Or is it just abusive on its face because of the behavior that the parent committed? No, hard to say. And again, we don't have a clinical, hard, concrete definition of this. Unlike major depressive disorder, which is fully defined and has been established in its constellation of symptoms for decades. We don't really have a a consensus on the use for the word abuse. And it's for a good reason, because we don't want to limit. We want people to use the word in the way that they want to. The key is is that uh, abuse is behavior. So Heather was saying, I imagine that all abuse is traumatic, but not all traumas are abusive. So it's important to understand that abuse is a behavior that we can usually observe. Okay, so let's go on to trauma. What is trauma? Is it any event that is distressing to someone like getting into into a car accident? We understand that can be traumatic for people going to war, witnessing a death. If you are walking down the street and you see someone get run over by a car, that can be traumatic. Uh, so is that what we're saying? You know, is that the definition of trauma? Or similar to abuse, is it any event that results in long-lasting negative effects? Like, uh, I don't know, hearing about your parents going through a medical problem. You know, your your mom sits you down and says, I have cancer and I might die. And then your mom survives and doesn't die. Is the thought of your mom dying, is that traumatic to you? Yeah, possibly. So in this instance, we're talking about trauma as an internal experience. Again, abuse is usually referring to a behavior that we can observe. Trauma is something that we don't typically are able to observe. We might be able to, to observe the effects of the trauma, like distress or panic or something. But usually it's an internal thing we have to ask. We have to ask someone, was that traumatic for you? So someone witnesses, Someone gets. let's just say someone gets in a car accident. Well, you can't know for sure if that was traumatic for them, because for them, it might not have been distressing, there might not be any long-lasting negative effects from it, and yeah, it wasn't their best day on the planet, but it wasn't that bad. Think about yourself. Um, If you've been in, like me, (laughs) I've been in a number of car accidents. By the way, I I never caused any of them. I'm proud of my driving skills and... I have been ran into a number of times. <laughs> One time I was just sitting at a stoplight and someone just ran into me and then claimed that someone ran into them behind them. And I was like, no, I, you let your... F-. I saw them creeping up on me from behind. It was a big truck, like a big rotor. I think it was a rotor router truck. And at the rear view mirror, I, I was just sitting there at a stoplight and I saw this rotor router truck just inching forward towards me, but kind of fast. And it looked like... The guy had let his foot off the brake, and the automatic transmission kicked in and just rammed into me. He claimed someone hit him, and then he bumped into me, but there was no evidence of that. But anyway, the point is is that that uh, car accident was not traumatic for me, but I can imagine another car accident being traumatic. So we can't just look at was someone in a car accident and say they suffered a trauma uh, unless we're using a real general sense of like, well, those are the sorts of behaviors that or sorts of events that tend to be traumatic, like witnessing a death or going to war or something like this. But in the clinical sense, trauma is something that it causes a negative effect. It's usually something that is quite distressing, quite scary for the individual, quite um, unpleasant for the individual and usually there's a long-lasting effect. So, for example, on the podcast, when I use the term relational trauma, I'm referring to a relational event that is distressing or hurtful, and there are long-lasting effects from that. When I talk about, you know, you know, so so-and-so suffered from relational traumas, again, a relational event, long-lasting negative effects as a result of distress or hurt. For example, distressing, meaning like an angry parent or sexual abuse or something. Those are distressing events for the individual in the moment. If you asked the individual being sexually abused how, you know, what was going on there, the child or the individual would say, I'm not enjoying this. This is very scary. I want this to end. Or an angry parent who is flying off the handle and screaming. That's very distressing. It's but we'd have to ask the child. We'd have to know because for some children, they might have an angry parent and they might not interpret it as distressing for whatever reason. And for them, it's just like, yeah, you know, that one night my dad got real angry, but it it didn't scare me. And so we'd have to know if it was scary and, dis- and or distressing or hurtful. Hurtful meaning emotionally cold parenting or criticism. So in these instances, the child is not scared but they are deeply hurt and it's a relational event and there are long lasting effects and so that's what I'm calling relational trauma so we see in just the you know surface level discussion that I'm having right now that the word abuse and the word trauma has a lot of usages and we have to be clear when we're when we're using those words what what usage we're we're using so you say movie zoomer heather I imagine that all abuse is traumatic, but not all traumas are abusive. So so let's look at that statement. Uh, you say, all abuse is traumatic. Well, it depends on our definition, but according to me and the way I use these words, I would not say that all abuse is necessarily labeled as traumatic. For example, you can suffer from legally defined abusive behaviors from your parents and not have it be traumatic in that, It wasn't particularly distressing for the child, and there's no long-lasting negative effects. Is it likely to be traumatic? Yes, but it doesn't have to be because, again, trauma is defined, according to my usage of the term, as something that is internal, that has to do with the way we interpret things, which has to do with our resilience and this sort of thing. And I've talked with lots of people who have been through abusive situations as children or adults and for some of those events they were they 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 were traumatized by those events in that it was emotionally distressing and there were long-lasting effects and some events they were not traumatized so not all abuse is necessarily traumatic that doesn't mean that we should allow people to be abusive <laughs> i'm just saying that it it's not automatic and the other part here you're saying and not but not all traumas are abusive and that is true yeah not All trauma is necessarily under the umbrella of abuse. You know, some trauma, we can be traumatized by uh, cold parenting, emotionally withdrawn parenting. That is, uh, at least my usage and many others of the term trauma, that's that. So you can experience something that's not abusive, but it can be absolutely traumatic in that it was difficult for you and There was long-lasting effects. Now, some people would say, well, that's not really trauma in the PTSD sense. When when we're using post-traumatic stress disorder, we're really talking about the distressing part. To have emotionally cold parenting, you're not going to likely suffer from PTSD. PTSD is a very particular condition as a result of distress, as a result of being terrified. Everybody that I've ever treated who had PTSD or complex PTSD was terrified at least once, if not throughout their entire childhood. Our physiology, our neurological systems either have an an adaptation or a ill effect from ongoing distress. That is what we call PTSD. Anyway. Going on with Heather's email here. I dated someone in college who threatened suicide if I broke up with them or did something they didn't like. They had attempted suicide in the past, so I couldn't ignore their threats of suicide. At the time, I would have said I was dealing with a traumatic situation, but looking back, I think I could label it as emotional abuse. Could you compare and contrast abuse and trauma? Okay. So it sounds like you're saying, was I abused? Was it traumatic? I'm trying to figure out. Well, again, it depends on your definition. It depends on what you're focusing on. And it really depends on how you want to define it, Heather. So you describe a situation in which you were being controlled. He was threatening suicide. If you broke up with him, he was threatening suicide. If you did something that they didn't like, he didn't like you to do. Well, that's very controlling and it's harmful. And it's a pattern, and so we would call that abusive. Not everyone necessarily would call that abusive, but I would. Anytime anyone is using things along these lines to control your behavior, particularly whether or not you break up with them, that is abusive. Now, is it traumatic? Could be. You would have to ask that question. Was it scary? Was it distressful? Were there negative long-term effects? did it change the working models that you had about other people for the worse so was it traumatic i'm guessing it was so it was both abusive and traumatic all right this next email or question on the fan page was anonymous fan they write thanks to psychology in seattle i reached out and found a kind and compassionate therapist who i've been working with for about with for about 6 months recently he has he has been using emdr along with psychotherapy The EMDR does seem to decrease my anxiety initially, but now there are many new memories surfacing from my trauma, and it's pretty overwhelming. I'm worried that I've opened Pandora's box and that I am not going to be able to cope. Can you talk a little bit about EMDR and how it works? What does the evidence say regarding its efficacy in treating patients like me? I would love to hear your input. Thanks. End of email. Yeah, well, I did a whole episode on EMDR A a whole deep dive, you can listen to that. I think it's just for patrons. And yeah, there's a lot of research demonstrating efficacy with EMDR with some clients with some conditions. So is it, can it be effective? Yes, it can be effective. Is it effective with everyone? No, it is not effective with it. Can every clinician use EMDR well? Not necessarily. Is every client a good candidate for EMDR? No. So, you know, but it is uh, empirically found um, uh, to be effective. I will say that I treat PTSD with a lot of people, and I don't use EMDR. I don't need EMDR. I use a I don't know personally modified prolonged exposure model that involves a lot of education, a lot of emotional regulation, a lot of emotional awareness a lot of compassion, a lot of meaning-making. And EMDR does that as well, but it's more uh, manualized and formalized, which I'm, I've i never been a fan of. I've never been a fan of applying a one-size-fits-all to all clients. Some EMDR people will adjust it for their clients. But anyway, the point is, is that uh, EMDR is absolutely effective for a lot of people, and a lot of people will report that it really helps them, and science has demonstrated that. So there's that. Now, you say, an anonymous fan, that you are overwhelmed. You say a lot of new memories are surfacing, and it's pretty overwhelming. That is very common when people go through trauma treatment. And the key is, is that you got to talk with your therapist about it, and you have to tell them what you can handle and what you can't. Trauma treatment has to go at a very careful pace there's a little bit of no pain, no gain, meaning that any kind of trauma treatment will involve some exposure. Any good trauma treatment will involve some kind of remembering of of what happened to you. In EMDR, you don't have to talk about it necessarily, but you are thinking about it. With prolonged exposure, you absolutely are talking about it through imaginal exposure, and it's going to be distressing, and that's the point. In order to recover you have to habituate to the memory. The reason why people suffer from PTSD syndromes is because the memory is causing so much distress when it pops into one's mind. And there's this avoidance of the memory popping into our mind. And so we end up avoiding a lot of life. And then we get demoralized and we want to pull away from people because it's so depressing to live with PTSD. And that's, in a nutshell, the PTSD condition. So in order to recover from PTSD, the memory has to be habituated to. And through scientifically you know uh, proven or scientifically supported treatments uh, like EMDR and prolonged exposure, one slowly becomes habituated to it. But the only way you can become habituated to the memory is if you talk about it, think about it and, and deal with a little bit of the stress while doing your relaxation exercises. It's the same as if you were trying to become no longer afraid of heights. The only way to become not, well, one of the only ways, one of the best ways that I've found to become no longer afraid of heights is if you slowly, graduatedly increase the amount of distress you feel, or not this amount of distress. uh, increase the the stimulus such that you feel. You know, I've talked about this before. So let's say you, you you have traumas in your life. You were abused by your mother. She was physically abusive with you, and you go to therapy and you have you go have PTSD. You get assessed for that, and you embark on treatment. So in my model, I talk a lot about upfront about the educational part, about what you're getting into, about uh, consent, making sure you understand. That you have consent to do this and making sure you understand what you're getting into, then the second phase is emotional awareness, uh, becoming very aware of one's distress levels and monitoring that in a very diligent way, and then the third, and that can take a long time. The third step is being able to regulate one's distress with very effective means that you do automatically without me being there. That can take a long time as well, and then the fourth step is imaginal exposure or sometimes i include a four step of like preparing for exposure but anyway so in this phase the individual in session will spend a half an hour uh at at the most thinking about um what happened to them so this client says okay I, you know i and i would ask them okay remember think about a memory of childhood in which you were traumatized by your mom and the client would say, okay, and they, they would tell me the story. And then I would ask them, okay, what number are you in terms of your distress level? And they'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm like a three. I'll go, okay, we'll continue telling the story. And they'd tell another five minutes. And usually I'm taking a lot of notes for various reasons I won't go into. But And then I'll say, how are you feeling? What's your distress level? And he, he'll say, oh, I, I think I'm a seven. I'd be like, okay, let's scale back. Let's do our breathing exercises. Let's engage in your distress reduction management system. What do you need to do? Do you need to do grounding? You know, and, and they do those things. And then a little bit later, I say, where's your distress level? And he says, oh, I'm, I'm back to a two. Okay. Re- resume the story. They resume the story. And they're at like a four. And I say, okay, do your deep breathing while you keep telling the story and make sure you relax your body and continue to tell the story. Over time, what happens is if you repeat this over and over again, Uh, When the client starts to tell a story or even an adjacent story of the traumatic moments, the individual no longer feels any distress because the body habituates to the memory. And so, you know, after many sessions of this, I tell me a story and they start talking about an abusive situation they went in or they recount more details of a story they told me before. And I say, what's your stress level? And they're like, "Mm, I'm like one and a half. And we do that a number of times. We keep going into different corners of their mind, different stories. And uh, by the end, not a single story distresses them. Not a single memory distresses them about the abuse they went through. Maybe a little bit, but not on the level clearly that they had before. We do an assessment of their PTSD symptoms. They no longer are avoiding relationships. They have better self-esteem. They're not demoralized anymore. They are able to sleep at night things don't trigger their, uh, you know, dissociative or panic response. Um, You know, like with this individual, someone getting angry at him or someone disapproving of him would cause his distress to spike to an eight or a nine. That no longer happens. And essentially, they don't have PTSD anymore. And so EMDR does all this essentially, but with eye movements. And there's And then there's the sixth step that I involve with clients, which is meaning-making, which is an important step. It's kind of like a narrative therapy step. It's a schema step. And it's this step in which the individual explores the meaning of what happened to them and why this happened and how they want to see what happened to them. It's important that whenever we go through a big event that we have some way of narrativizing the... The what happened to us. Uh, you could say it's for closure reasons or existential reasons. A common, and this is the same with loss, when someone dies close to you, like my grandma died a few years ago and it's really sad for me and I feel bad and I feel like I miss her and I wish she were around and, and I feel sorry for her. But, she lived a really long, great life, and you know, she lived to be a hundred and one. And she, a lot of people loved her, and a lot of people uh, had a she had a lot of great times. And she, her body was really quite weak in the end, and her mind wasn't ex- all there the way it used to be. And the universe just wanted her to join the universe, and that's my meaning of that event. But when she first died, I didn't feel that way. I developed meaning, a story, if you will, of why it happened. And, it, and I have closure around that whenever I think about my grandma dying, that the meaning that I derive from that loss will uh, rise to the surface and I guess in a sense soothe me or at least give me resolution. And for this fictional client who had the abusive mother, there would be exploration of that. Why did you do this? Some people will say, well, it made me more compassionate towards other people because I know what abuse feels like. Or it made me a a person who knows that I can survive anything. I feel like I'm really stronger now. Or it gives me the self esteem that I'm competent enough to look at my own feelings and take care of myself, whatever it is. And that's an important step. So uh, you say, anonymous fan, that it's overwhelming. And I don't know from your email, and I probably would never be able to tell, if that is going too fast in therapy or going just right. And again, you want to talk with your therapist about that for sure. All right, let's talk about another question from famous patron Linden from the Facebook fan page. He writes, is abuse an effect of attachment injuries or other psychodynamic processes? So famous patron Linden always has complicated question, so let's dive into this. Is abuse an effect of attachment injury, meaning that the abusive person suffers from attachment injury, or other psychodynamic processes? And the, the answer to your question, Lyndon, is yes. Within attachment theory, my application of the theory is when one senses or feels attachment distance, as opposed to attachment proximity with one's attachment figures, we are afraid, and we will search for a solution to that fear, and we will activate that solution. So for some of us, when we feel distant from our partner, we will hug them, or we will say, I love you, or we will say, hey, let's hang out for a second, or we will, I don't know, hit on the person or something. And for some people, though, when they feel distance and that fear They search their database for a solution and abusive behaviors emerge for them because that's what was taught to them when they were young or that's what what was, um, you know, rewarded when they were a young child or something. And so that's what they resort to. So according to attachment theory, a lot of abuse happens uh, due to this attachment distance fear and a lack of of repertoire for solving that attachment distance is this. The case for everyone who's abusive, no, but it, for a lot of people, it is. I've, I've found this to be true. But you're also asking about psychodynamic theory, and yes, when another, you know, through that theory lens, when people are abusive, they are potentially engaging in a defense of regression or identifying with the abu- with the abuser. When you're a child and you're being abused, and you feel powerless, extremely powerless. You will look for a solution to feel power and some people some children in an effort to gain power because they are made to feel powerless by the abusive person the child says well who has power and who can i who can i have as a mentor or a or an idol a role model of power well the person abusing me the person abusing me has so much power that if I become like them, then I will also have power. And so I'm going to become abusive. I'm going to become a bully. I'm going to become entitled and enforce my body on other people. And I'm going to use my anger in the way that my abuser uses anger because I am I feel so powerless because of the abuse. And I will adopt them as a, in their personality as a way of gaining power. And this is all unconscious, which is, of course, a psychodynamic idea. There's also the idea of enactments and reenacting what happened in the past, but I won't go into that. All right. Andri says, she says, I'd like to hear about how to deal with the lack of justice and closure due to the death of an abusive parent. I'd like to hear how to deal with the lack of justice and closure due to the death of an abusive parent. Oh, I see. So she's saying that, I don't know if this is for her, but that if you have an abusive parent and then that abusive parent dies, then you don't have an opportunity to achieve justice or closure with that person. I'm never going to get an apology or even discuss the childhood situations that have colored my whole life. Do you have any advice or input on how one can move forward from a need for resolution? End of question. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, listen to my long episode on family of origin work. I think it's for pagans only. So I just do it. go to the website, search for the family of origin work episode. Uh, family of origin therapy, I think I called it. And essentially, you can do a lot of things. Um, Family of origin work can include dealing with abusive parents. It often does. And family of origin therapy acknowledges that sometimes your your family of origin can't be reached either through death or something else. Um, So there's a lot of exploration. There's a lot of investigation. And that can achieve closure, not necessarily justice, but maybe some justice, maybe – if you find out about that parent's childhood, maybe some resolution can occur from that. It, it often does. Um, when we grow up, we have this idea of our parents as these gods and as these people who just sort of sprung out of the earth. And we have a hard time imagining what, you know, for, it was, we have a hard time really imagining, uh, not all of us, but some of us, when things are going well, actually, we have a hard time imagining our parents as children. And when we get older and we're trying to differentiate, it's important, I think, to go down that road of seeing our parents as human beings. And when we do that, we rewrite the story. For example, Andre, it's possible that when, uh, if you do family of origin therapy with a therapist, by the way, you might find that there's a lot of new information about your parent who passed away that you didn't really know, or at least you put it in a different perspective. And then when you learn that, it puts his or her behavior, your parents' behavior, in a different light. You start to see it in a different way. And now your story is different. Instead of being abused by this tyrant, you were abused by someone who was abused themselves, that kind of thing. And sometimes that can be very, you know, provide a lot of closure. The other, uh, you know, technique that pops in my head is what we call and gestalt therapy, empty chair work. It's also just an experiential therapy um, activity in Satyrian models, this kind of thing. But essentially what you do in therapy, and I've done this with clients, is you do a exercise in which you imagine your parent who passed away is in the room with you, and you have a conversation with the parent. And you might actually even get into the empty chair and say what your parent would have said back to you. And you go back and forth. And that can be extremely healing. I've done that kind of work with clients before. I one time had a client where I was doing this work, this exact thing. I was having him talk to his father who had passed away. And my client, he, at, at, I was, you know, leading him through this exercise. And then all of a sudden he just, ex- my client just exploded and his his big complaint that he came to therapy for was he had a lot of anger, and he said that he would explode while he was at work sometimes, and he had complex PTSD from his father's abuse. And so when we did this empty chair exercise, it helped him to get out a lot of his feelings. You know, one of the things that happens to us when we have parents that abuse us is that we were never able to really let him have it. And letting them have it, even in empty chair work, can be very healing. All right. Jenny, she says, is it possible for a child to abuse a parent? Yes, Jenny. It is 100% possible and happens all the time. I had a lot of clients in my family therapy days where this was the case, where the child absolutely was abusing the parent. And it's often... Um, stigmatized if if someone claims like oh there's a kid abusing the parent, a lot of people from the outside will say well the parent must deserve it right because children are innocent. Um, I'm here to tell you everyone children are not innocent necessarily. Children can be innocent, but they're not all innocent. I've treated some very uninnocent children. <laughs> I one of the very first people I worked with was a total psychopath bully. Just, I don't, I mean, he, he was, he was the most abusive human I've ever met. And he, he was, I don't know, 14 years old or something. And I wasn't a therapist yet. And I actually had to just watch him. My whole job was to make sure that he did not abuse other people, particularly younger children. And if I took my eyes off him for three seconds He would know and he would make a beeline to abuse someone. It was crazy. And so can a child be abusive, even though the parents were, you know, not terrible? Yeah. Um, Another scenario that I would see. Now, certainly we can imagine situations where a child will be abusive to a parent because of bad parenting. That's a pretty much of an obvious scenario that could happen for sure. But there are other scenarios where I would see parents who... You know, they weren't perfect, but they weren't terrible. And we had a kid who, because of racism and sexism, is bullied at school and falls into a gang. And then because of that gang activity and the drug abuse and maybe even the PTSD as a result of what goes on when you're in a gang, the child would come home and they would abuse the parent, even though the parent was, like I said, Not a a terrible parent and obviously didn't deserve any of that kind of stuff. So can that happen? Yeah. Another scenario is an adopted child who has a tremendous amount of personality issues that they inherited from their parents or they acquired due to early attachment disruptions. And can those children abuse the parents? Yes. Yeah. Of course children can abuse parents. And these are some of the loneliest parents on the planet because no one will, you know, help them often. All right, let's take a break and come back. We'll answer some more questions. Hey, deserving listeners. As you know, I'm constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. One of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp.com. So if you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the slash Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it helps us out. I get a lot of emails from you saying that you're looking for a therapist. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, but I know it can be really hard to find a good one to work with. Like I said, one of the options available to try is betterhelp.com slash Kirk. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide, which is amazing. I've been told that you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message with your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And I've been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. So go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month of therapy today. All right, this next question is from anonymous upper-tier patron from Canada. She writes, My father was a sexually abusive pedophile. He committed suicide two days before my 30th birthday, After being charged with making and distributing child pornography, my mother is an emotionally abusive and neglectful narcissist. I have been in therapy for 16 years with complex PTSD and generalized anxiety. I don't want to lose my relationship with my mother as my father is already dead. She has been to therapy with me many times, but no ground has been made in therapy. The preoccupied part of my brain keeps hoping for a healthy relationship with my narcissistic mother, but the logical part of my brain tells me that it will never be. Can I ever expect my mother to change? Are narcissists capable of changing, or do I need to give up this hope for good and end the relationship? End of question. So this is complicated, obviously, and I'm really sorry, Anonymous upper tier patron from Canada, that you went through As It sounds like a a lot to unpack, and you've been in therapy for 16 years, and so good for you for that. And I hope that you find relief as you go. You really deserve that. If anyone deserves relief and serenity, it's you. So you you say here that, you know, the preoccupied part of my brain, I I keep hoping for a healthy relationship. So that's one side that could definitely be around, that you keep barking up the same tree when it's not healthy to do so. That's possible. But your other question is, can I expect a narcissistic mother to change? Well, you can't expect, but can they change? Yes, absolutely. People with narcissism are absolutely capable of change. It takes a long time, but yeah, I've I've treated many people with narcissistic personality disorder, and it's a defense. It's It's a defense against worthlessness. And when we help that person with their sense of worthlessness and help them develop a a, a sense of real self then their empathy is no longer impaired and they can actually have a tremendous amount of empathy for people so it it absolutely can be treated but the individual has to want to change and it takes a long time all right this next email anonymous upper tier patron she writes i've been listening to your podcast for a while now and i noticed that sometimes people get on your case about being too forgiving towards people who can be abusive such as people with narcissistic personality disorder or domestic violence perpetrators regarding this, I want to forgive. I want to forgive abusive people such as my father recently i've been i've been, I've been, recently I've even found myself wanting to forgive the man who sexually assaulted my partner, but then I quickly stopped when I noticed how upset it was making her. I was wondering if it is at all pathological to want to forgive abusers like I do. Are some people more forgiving than others? Do you experience similar situations end of email yeah, it's a great question. So, I want to be clear that I am not saying that you should be forgiving towards people who are abusive or people with personality disorders. I'm not saying you're supposed to forgive them. And I I pray to God that I haven't said that because that that's not what I believe. I I will never ever say to anyone that you're supposed to forgive someone. I will never ever say to anyone that you're supposed to deal with someone. If someone is abusing you, if someone has a personality disorder that is harming you, I actually, uh, I don't know what to do. It's up to you to decide what to do. And I will support you in either direction once you decide what you want. If you decide you want to leave that person and never forgive them, I support you. If you want to forgive that person and leave that person, I support you. If you want to Forgive that person and stay with them because you have compassion for the abuse they went through that resulted in the abuse that they impose on you. I support you. It all depends on what you want. So I hope that it's never been communicated from me that I recommend that you stay close to these people and that you forgive them. That is not what I'm saying. All that I'm doing is providing a clinical perspective about these individuals. When someone with narcissistic personality disorder comes to me, when someone with borderline personality disorder comes to me who also is externalizing and abusive to others, because not all borderline or narcissistic people are abusive, by the way, or a a perpetrator, domestic violence perpetrator comes to me. It's not my job to chastise them and to tell them that they're a piece of crap, right? (laughs) Right. It's my job to treat those individuals. And if I'm going to effectively treat them and help them so that they won't abuse other people, I have to have compassion for them. And I have to have a clinical conceptualization you know, that doesn't include chastising them. I have to understand what the problem is. Why are they being abusive? I need to develop an idea of why that is happening. Because if I don't, I don't know what to treat. And there's a ton of evidence, scientifically and anecdotally for me, that supports my point of view. And I've helped people who are abusive towards others, whether they have a personality disorder or not, through the way that I see them. But that's me. That I'm a clinic, I am don't tell people to go away. <laughs> yeah, and I don't have to live with these people. They are my clients. They come to me once a week, and that's it. And I get paid. So that's a big difference than being in a relationship with someone or working with someone or having a parent that is someone like that and you feel like you have to forgive them, you don't have to. It's up to you. You could never forgive and that is your choice. No one can tell you what to do with that and don't ever listen to anyone who tries to tell you what to do. If you want to forgive and you want to go down that road or explore that, go for it. If you don't, That's fine, too. Don't ever listen to anyone telling you what to do around that. That is your personal choice. And to some extent, it is abusing the abused person to suggest that they should do otherwise. It's your choice. So for you, anonymous upper-tier patron, you are wanting to forgive, and you want to go down that road, and you deserve that, and that's, that's fine. And you might find at the end of the road that you actually don't want to abuse, or you don't want to forgive people. You might find that the reason why you want to forgive is based on some maladaption on your point, but it's also possible that you'll find that you really do want to forgive and you will forgive, whereas other people won't want to forgive. And you have been affected. You know, your partner was assaulted by a man, and you want to. And you were affect. You're affected by that because I'm guessing your partner told you about what happened, and you are now angry at that person. But because of your journey of you know, recovery, your particular journey means that you want to forgive that person. That's a part of your journey. But your partner, she is saying, that hurts my feelings because I don't want you to forgive that person. If you forgive that person, it, it, it means that you don't care what I went through. And maybe there's some conversations there. I don't know. I'm guessing that there is. It doesn't mean that you can't forgive that person cuz that person affected you as well. They mostly affected your partner, but because you love and care about your partner, that man also affected you. When any whenever anyone abuses someone, they abuse that individual and everyone around them essentially. So, uh, it's it's okay that you have the forgiveness impulse. Now, you might decide in conversations with your partner that to be loyal to your partner, you're you're not going to forgive that person or maybe both can happen maybe you can both completely validate and acknowledge and be with your partner as they do not forgive but also forgive so those those things are possible so you say are some people more forgiving than others and what I'll say to that is yeah i guess so behaviorally i've seen some people who are very forgiving other of others and other people who maybe are never forgiving but it's a personal choice they, there's all these ideas rattling around in culture that you always have to forgive or, you know, I, I forgive, but I don't forget or never forgive. And it's fine. Everyone can be on their own journey uh, around that. There's benefits to forgiving, but there's also uh, some pros to not forgiving. It just depends. Uh, forgiveness is a very complicated thing and it means different things to different people. For some people, forgiving means forgetting and not holding something over their head for other people. They'll say, I forgive you, but I will never forget what you did. And every interaction I have with you will be colored by the fact that you did that. You know, it's, it's a very complicated idea. And I really appreciate you anonymous separate to your patron. As you explore that you, you want to figure out what that means to you. Uh, your father was abusive to you and you want to forgive him, and that's your journey and maybe through that journey because that's the other thing to think about is that forgiveness isn't just something like we just wave this wand and we go I forgive you forgiveness you especially when it's like with an abusive father this is something that you probably have a lot of um, you know mulling over over the years and forgiveness isn't something that you usually do just once. It's something that you probably have to revisit for years to come. And for you, this is your recovery process. And that's that's great, but it's, it's not for everybody. All right. Anonymous Patron writes in and says, I have a strong reaction when you talk about abusive relationships on the podcast, because there often seems to be an implication that one party is always unequivocally the abuser and the other party is always unequivocally the victim. This doesn't match my experience of abuse. In my last relationship, I was physically attacked many times by my girlfriend. I do not want to portray myself as an altogether a victim, though. I was plainly not. I was a real mess myself. We met in rehab and were drinking throughout most of the relationship. The violence went both ways, though I was definitely a victim at times. In the vast majority of these violent instances, she was the one hitting me. I just had a session with my therapist in which I talked quite a bit about this relationship. I've discussed the abuse with her before. Not once has my therapist told me I didn't deserve to be hit, but she did try to redirect and talk about my own part in the violence, which I fully admitted to her. I explicitly told my therapist how unfair it felt that my ex got to go on social media and paint herself as a martyr after she the way she treated me. I feel like with any female client, my therapist would have immediately assured her that it wasn't right for her to be treated that way. What are your thoughts on how we shunt people into abuser roles that don't seem altogether appropriate? End of email. Yeah, this is a great point. I don't know your situation, obviously, and there's a lot of nuance here. Can a relationship involve mutually abusive people? Yes, absolutely. It's not common, but it definitely can happen for sure in which if we had an inside ability to watch what was happening and understand the power dynamics, we might walk away from some relationships going, huh, both of them are to blame for the violence, and neither one of them are being completely controlled by the other person. Both of them are using controlling abusive behaviors, or maybe it's like a 70%, 30% thing, this kind of thing. So... Uh, The other thing here is, yeah, can society not understand what you went through, even a clinician? uh, If you were to talk about this and say, hey, I was abused, even if uh, you never hit her, what you're saying is you hit her and she hit you. But let's say you're in a situation where you never hit her and she always hit you. There are a lot of people who would just assume that you're lying because they have a hard time imagining that or, well, let's be clear, when anyone comes forward as a victim of abuse, everyone is usually stigmatized. Men are just usually stigmatized more than women are. And so for you to feel like people don't really understand you, to for you to feel like people aren't validating your experience is unfortunate, but not surprising to me. The other thing I'll say is that For a lot of abusers, there will be violence going both ways, separate from your situation, and maybe this is what's influencing your therapist, and maybe your therapist thinks this. But there are situations where we hear that there is violence going both ways. That's not the only thing we need to assess. What we need to assess is the overall power differential between the two people and the way in which things play out. So when I was treating perpetrators of domestic violence, it wasn't uncommon for there to be reports, even from the victim, that she was also violent with him. But when we actually investigated, we found that if the husband hadn't been doing all the abusing, the wife wouldn't have either, and that the wife was only resorting to violence because of the abuse that was happening to her. And... She used to blame for that violence for sure, but the overall pattern of control and emotional control was from the, man, from the man to the woman. Now, could it be the other way? Absolutely. Could there be violence in a heterosexual relationship going both ways, and we find that the wife is the one who is the more controlling one? Absolutely. And that's why these things get real messy real fast, and they often are on some level of spectrum, Maybe it's a 95%, 5% responsibility sort of thing, but victims of domestic violence aren't perfect human beings. (laughs) They will also make mistakes. They will also resort to things that they shouldn't. So we don't look at those situations and just say, oh, the abuser is the evil one and the victim is the saint, for sure. Now, there are situations, I will, again, I've said this, but I just want to point out that abusers will sometimes claim well, she hits me back, therefore, this is mutual, when in reality, it very much is not that way. But if you feel like, hey, I was abused as well, in fact, she was the one hitting me as well, I felt unsafe, I felt as though I couldn't really be myself around her because if I was, she she would be violent with me. If you felt that way, then you were abused. And if your partner felt that way as well, it's likely that you were abused Abusing her as well. And can that happen? Absolutely. And especially when people are in the throes of an addiction, that can happen. All right, this next email is from Patron M from South Carolina, they say, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on emotional, physical or financial abuse within Asian American families. I'd like to know if you have any insight in about how cultural expectations and traditional ideals serve to normalize it. I've heard your take on corporal punishment and how context affects the results. Is this similar? At what point does it go too far? And how can victims and children of the system be helped when this is all they know? End of email. Yeah, well, I don't have a lot to go off of what what you're talking about here. But this certainly can be true, where, uh, and there's a lot of different uh, manifestations of this. So let's say that you live in China, and the cultural And I don't know if this is necessarily true, but let's say that in that neighborhood in China, the the cultural norm is to be uh, real harsh with your kids. And for some families, they navigate that harshness with love and affection, and the child is not traumatized by it. The next door house, the parents are also very strict and very harsh but there's not a lot of love and not a lot of affection and the kids are traumatized by that behavior. Okay. So that's one thing to bring up. The other thing to bring up is if you are in an Asian American family and your parents are adhering to the old country's ideals and you are being raised with one foot in an, a, in an Asian household and another foot in an, a, in the American society outside, then there's a different interpretation because your neighbors aren't necessarily being treated the way you are. And you see that there's other options. And the system that you are being, uh, you know, educated in has a whole different set of ideals. Let's go back to China. In China, in certain neighborhoods, your parents will be very harsh with you on in terms of Seattle standards. And the schools will be very harsh with you. And so, Harshness is the norm, and so you learn, oh, well, that's just how authority operates. But if you're in the States, and you have a very harsh household, but your school is not very harsh with you, you start, and particularly when you go to your friends' houses, and you see that those kids aren't harsh, and I'm using the word harsh in a non-negative way. I'm just saying, like, you know, you're you're talking about emotional, physical, and financial uh, sort of control that a parent will have over a child. And so... That will also create a complication for that individual. They are looking at their parents and going, why are you doing this to me? No one else does this to their kids. Why is this happening to me? And I'm being taught by the outside world that I need to value my independence and my individuality while you keep trying to break that down. So that's another complication. The other thing that you bring up, which is a good point, is that well, some people will use culture as an excuse to do what they're doing. They will say, well, this is the way that uh, we parent in our country, as if that justifies everything, as if that somehow lets people off the hook. And that is not okay. And people will do that all the time. People will use all sorts of justifications for their behavior or for understanding their behavior. It might even be for some immigrant families, they might feel like they're one thing that they want to hold on to from the old country is their traditional parenting values, and to ask them to give that up is very it's a huge loss for them you know for and i've and I've been with many families in family therapy like this where you have Asian immigrant parents who are tr- desperately trying to raise their kid from their ethnic heritage, you know, his Chinese family, and they're, they're trying to raise their kids to be Chinese, and to value Chinese things and to speak Chinese and to think like a Chinese person. But they're not, they're thinking like an American Chinese person, and they're thinking like an Asian American would. And there's a huge clash there. And the parents don't know what to do. And they feel like they're losing their children. And there's a lot of real scary things about American society that immigrants will often lament. Things like kids do do whatever they want, drugs and alcohol and not going to college and, uh, you know, becoming a YouTuber for crying out loud. <laughs> you know, like these things are very threatening to these kinds of parents. And so for them, it, it can almost be a parental mandate that they try to de-Americanize their children. and It can be this very big back and forth. Certainly a lot of families navigate it well, but, you know, some they have a harder time. And it just requires a lot of conversation, a lot of care, a lot of warmth, a lot of understanding, and usually that can help for sure. But, yeah, can someone be considered, oh, you know, that's a cultural thing. You know, in in our country, this is the way we do things. In our country, it's normal for parents to do this. Well, that doesn't make it good, Okay. Uh, In the same way that an American family can't go overseas and proceed to abuse their kids and say, well, this is normal because American families, this is what we do to our children. Um, Like an example of this is you might have recently heard the episode on attachment parenting. In the United States, on average, we are neglecting our children by making them grow up too fast and making them independent too fast. And so if... An American family were to go to another country and treat their kids this way and the neighbors are going, why are you putting your kid in their own room when they're not even a year old yet? That is, that's inhumane. That's crazy. That parent, that American parent should not say, well, this is how we do it in, in America. This is, this is my culture. It doesn't make it right. You know, just because something is every, you know, every society has its problems. And I I have a newsflash for Americans. America isn't the only society that has problems (laughs) culturally. Some Americans can be so self-centered sometimes that they literally believe every other society doesn't have problems compared to America. You know, it's like, no, every we just have the biggest media coverage of our problems. But, you know, every society has problems and every society has problems with their parenting and every society has pros with their parenting. And so... Just because something is cultural does not mean that it is functional. All right, this next email is from an anonymous patron. He writes, My very close friend's ex recently reached out to me personally. They accused my friend of raping them, asking that I talk with him and prevent him from doing it again. I believe this account is true. I know he was abused sexually as a child, but I feel extremely angry at him and I don't really want to talk to him. How should I help him? Should I even try to help him? Should I cut him out of my life? End of email. Yeah, difficult situation to be in, and there's no right answer to this, of course. Some, someone reached out to you and told you that your close friend had been sexually abusive to someone. And now you know that, and you're pretty sure that the account is right. Do you talk with your friend? Do you tell him, hey— I know that you raped your previous partner, and or did you rape your previous relationship person? What happened there? That's a difficult conversation. Now, on one hand, you could say that it is your moral responsibility to do something about it, to try to help them, to try to help them recover, you know, whatever it is. Suggest that that person go to therapy and work on this. And that's certainly something that you could do, and I think a lot of people would support you for that. But it's hard to know what to do exactly. What if you say something and your friend's like, I didn't do that. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, now now what do you do? You're pretty sure that your friend is lying about it. Do you cut this person out of your life? Do you know for sure that the account from the ex-partner is truthful? It's a difficult situation to be in. And I think, you know, just continue to explore it. And I think it sounds like you're thinking about talking to your friend and maybe you already have. And, you know, I think that's that's a that's the moral move, right? Because imagine if you have someone that's close to you or let's say from the other side, let's say that someone sexually assaults you and you're, the person who abuses you they have a really close friend, and you tell that close friend. You say, "By the way, your your close friend assaulted me." Well, as as a victim, you would hope that the friend would say something to the perpetrator and try to help that person so that it doesn't happen again. And so, for victims' rights and for the good of the world, it's probably a good idea to say something. But you know. I can't say that that's what you're supposed to do because it's, you know, it's more complicated than that. All right. This next email is from patron Onko. She says, people tend to label stonewalling and the silent treatment as malicious abuse. But as you encourage us listeners to do, I try to trust my partner when he says it's not a punishment and that he is just overwhelmed. However, sometimes this overwhelming anger can last for days. I was wondering if you could talk about how someone can understand stonewalling and the silent treatment when they aren't perpetrated by a narcissist. Is there anything I can do or have in mind when this occurs? Should I see it as a lost cause because it is inherently abusive? End of email. So this question seems to be influenced by the terrible Internet discourse around a variety of topics that you were touching on. I don't know if that's true. But I have never heard someone say that stonewalling is abusive. (laughs) It can be abusive, but it is not considered that in the clinical world. Stonewalling is a behavior that people will engage in because they're shutting down and they don't know what else to do. And it's not helpful and it's harmful and it's hurtful, but it's not inherently quote-unquote malicious abuse as if the person is doing it on purpose to harm you or the silent treatment Uh, that's almost never the case and then so I just want to put that forward the other thing is you're saying that you're labeling it overwhelming anger Uh, so that so he says that it's not a punishment and that he's overwhelmed and then you say that it's called overwhelming anger well did he say that? Did he say that he's, you know, quiet, you know, you're labeling it as stonewalling and the silent treatment. Another way to label it and they and all are correct, but another way to label it is that he's overwhelmed and he's quiet and he doesn't know what else to do. So that's just another way to see it. All you can see is that he is not responsive to you and you can label that stonewalling. You can label it the silent treatment. You can label it being overwhelmed. It, it, depends on what's really happening for him. Now, he is saying that, look, it's, I'm, I'm not quiet because it's a punishment and I'm overwhelmed. Now, it could be true. It also could be true that he is actually trying to subtly punish you, whether he's aware of that or not. A lot of people who stonewall and do silent treatments are secretly trying to harm you. They're, they're trying to send a message. They're, they're trying to, I guess that's the better, they're, they're trying to send a message. You know, a common example would be you are talking about something, and one thing leads to another, and now you're upset at each other. And then the silent treatment person proceeds to be very standoffish for a couple of days. Well, what's happening often for the standoffish, stonewalling silent treatment person is they're hoping that their partner will read their mind and see that they're hurt and that what they're hoping for is that the other person will say, you know what? The thing that happened a couple of days ago, I've been thinking about it and I'm real sorry that I said this, this, and this, and I know I must've hurt your feelings. That's what the silent treatment person is hoping for. That almost never happens because when you give someone the silent treatment, they don't feel very warm towards you. And they also don't necessarily know how to read your mind. And so the, if you, by the way, anyone out there, if you're prone to silent treatment, The solution is to be vulnerable and to say, hey, I have an urge to be silent against you right now. But in reality, what's happening is I'm real sad about what happened earlier. That's important. The vulnerability is the important part. But then you go on here to say, I was wondering if you could talk about how someone can understand stonewalling and silent treatment when they aren't perpetrated by a narcissist. So that's another uh, indication that you're absorbing too much BS on on the internet. I don't know. But uh, the idea that uh, silent treatment and stonewalling is one malicious abuse, and two perpetuated by a quote unquote narcissist. Y- you notice that I will almost never use the term a narcissist. Like, you know, that person is a narcissist because that actually doesn't exist in my in my clinical cultural pocket. We never would use that term. One, we would say someone who suffers from narcissistic personality disorder because that's a more accurate way of putting it. And two, the term a narcissist is used too much by society to have any kind of meaning these days. You know, a, and and you know, I'll say that in the clinical literature there's a lot of different ways that they will use the word narcissism and certainly there are some uh, authors that will use the term a narcissist, but given the way the internet talks about you know, narcissists you know, how to detect this person is a narcissist. And it, I find that these conversations, you know, they're, they're probably fine, but they don't fit my conceptualization of narcissism. And in, my, in all of my travels, and all of my time with clients, I've never come across what the Internet calls a narcissist. What the Internet calls a narcissist is what I would call a Psychopath someone that doesn't have any empathy. Now, psychopathic individuals are narcissistic usually, but I wouldn't call them a narcissist because we already have a word, which is someone suffering from psychopathic personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder. And so to focus on the self-centeredness of these people and to label them a narcissist is an internet phenomenon that I just don't want to participate in because it it's it's a... Weird way of talking that I find it's it often the conversations that I happen to see on the Internet, like on Reddit or something are often echo chambers of people who were hurt by previous people, often by men, by the way, and they're looking for an explanation. You know, a similar phenomenon that I would observe are men who are hurt by women calling women these like feminazis. These kinds of words, you'll see these words being thrown around, like, "Oh, you know, women use their sexuality against men." You, I, I don't know if you know that this exists on the internet, but there's the the incel people, the MGTOW people, the pickup artist people, the red pill people. These people have uh, extremely problematic points of view towards women, but in my observation, ninety nine percent of the dudes in those circles are there because they were hurt by a woman and they didn't know what to do and they went to the internet and the internet provided them with a very convenient uh, answer to their problems, which was that woman didn't break up with you because you are unappealing. That woman broke up with you because of feminism. That woman broke up with you because the liberals told her to. That woman broke up with you because... Uh, the Marxist movement told her that to to level the playing field, women have to put women down. There's all this ridiculous crap, believe me. And when I see those conversations, I'm like, whoa, how did you get there? And then, oh, well, you know, you're just a bunch of men who have been really hurt, and I feel very bad for you. But don't go down that road, my friend. (laughs) It's a, a weird echo chamber of propaganda that you will not benefit from. You know, there's other dudes on the Internet that you can bond with who don't have a weird feminist conspiracy theory. And I am not describing this. I'm not exaggerating. In fact, I'm probably downplaying the misogyny that is in this group. Okay. So uh, so that's, a, that's something that happens on the Internet. Well, I think a, a consummate thing is happening with some echo chambers on the Internet with women. It's not nearly as toxic <laughs> as the... The incel group, for sure. I mean, incels literally will kill people. Be, you know, they'll go on mass murdering sprees because of the propaganda that's rattling around in their head. So, I'm not saying it's you know the same, but it does have a similar feel to it in that I will happen upon these conversations, and there's a lot of women who have been hurt in the same way that a lot of men in heterosexual relationships have been hurt, and they they turn to these convenient explanations there's a lot of women that will uh, be talking to each other and supporting each other and the way they will collectively talk about their ex- boyfriends around you know he was a narcissist and he was gaslighting me as if that person was maliciously trying to get you now does that happen yes I've been talking about this this whole time this these, this whole series is about abuse right uh, psychopaths and antisocial Personality sufferers exist in the world, and they are numerous. They're rare, but any anything with one or two percent of a rate in the span of seven and a half billion people, you're going to have a lot of people. You know what is that? It's seven uh, seven hundred fifty million people. Wait, no, seven seventy five million people on the planet. I have that right? Seven billion. Yeah. So seventy five million individuals or more, maybe like. 150 million people on the planet are psychopaths. That's a that's you know millions and millions of psychopaths. In the United States that would be uh that would be about 7 million, do I have that right? I think so. So in the United States we have about 7 million psychopaths. That's a lot of psychopaths, right? It's a lot of people who don't have the capacity for empathy. That's a lot of people who would wouldn't blink an eye about taking from you and trying to screw you over or trying to con you out of your money or your time or, or something, you know, these, these individuals are harmful and they're, they're out there, but they're rare. So when people are in these echo chambers about, you know, my ex-boyfriend was a narcissist who gaslit me, it's possible because that does happen, but it's also possible that this individual is hurt by something, by someone and, they're, and it feels like their ex-partner was self-centered. It feels like their partner was maliciously trying to harm them. That's the way it feels. And so you go on the Internet and you find all these pockets on the Internet talking about narcissists and gaslighting, and it feels correct. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Um, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that, but... I'm saying that it's not necessarily a clinically accurate picture of what happened. And so I I just want to caution everyone about going on the internet from any direction. Just be careful about what explanations feel satisfying to you. And the re, and, and I'm not trying to defend the narcissists. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help you because if you walk away from a from a situation concluding all my ex-boyfriends are narcissists and all my ex-boyfriends were gaslighting me well and that's not true let's say you know in my fictional example here that's actually not an accurate point of view you know maybe a more accurate point of view is well one of your ex-boyfriends was a psychopath but but the rest of them were hurt and they didn't know how to navigate conflict and they feel like you were being self-centered they feel like you are gaslighting them you you were you were both hurting each other inadvertently that is extremely common and so let's say that that's really what happened in this fictional individual well if if that individual walks away with the conclusion that all the exes were narcissists and all the exes were gaslighting and all the uh, you know exes were malignant narcissistic abusive people then what does that do to your working model of other people? How does that help you trust other individuals in the future? How does that help you trust yourself when you actually start to date people? It's not going to help. You're going to be very, very afraid of future people. You're going to be very, very concerned. And when there's any indication of quote unquote narcissism or gaslighting or malicious or malignancy, then it's going to trigger all this trauma in you because that's what you're associating with what happened to you. Instead of a narrative of, well, you know, we pushed each other's buttons and I I was to blame for some things and he was absolutely to blame for some other things. And it didn't work out and I don't like him anymore and I wish I never would have dated him. But, you know, these things happen. If that's an accurate point of view, which I want to couch that, um, then that 's a more healthy narrative to have that will help you into the future now, I want to also say that some people have dated five psychopaths in their life, so i 'm not so if you 're out there and you 're like no i 'm pretty sure I dated five psychopaths. Yes, that can happen absolutely i've met people like that where we conclude, "Wow, yeah, you have dated some of the most problematic individuals i 've ever heard of before. I mean complete psychopathic behavior. I one uh woman I talked to talked about one of her exes locking her in a house for like a week and torturing her. That is psychopathic. There is no uh, uh I don't know sympathetic conceptualization of behavior like that, right? There's no amount of attachment insecurity that justifies imprisoning someone for a week and torturing them like that goes way beyond the pale there's clearly something wrong with that person's empathy and the ability to care about other human beings i mean there's just something different about that individual so it you know and then you have uh, three more relationships that are similar in that direction and that happens sometimes but to some extent. It's kind of luck of the draw. I mean, if you just happen to swipe right on the psychopath that's on the on the app, you know it, and and the person is good at hiding it, it's then you know you can get sucked in, and it can be real, real awful for you. Anyway, so your question, <laughs> patron, is that silent treatment. You know, uh, is there anything I can do, or? have in mind when it occurs, should I see it as a lost cause? Because it is inherently abusive. Like I said, silent treatment is not inherently abusive. As we've been talking about, abuse is is an experience of control. So uh, we've all given people the silent treatment. <laughs> I can't imagine a single human being on the planet who hasn't given the silent treatment at least for five minutes to their partner. Is that mean we're all inherently abusers no it just meant you didn't know what else to say or you you just were so angry you just didn't want to say anything anymore you know there's a lot of reasons why you'd be giving someone quote-unquote the silent treatment so can it be abusive yeah absolutely can an abusive person utilize stonewalling and silent treatment absolutely and you're saying it should i see it as a lost cause i don't know you know uh, i don't know enough about your situation It could be a lost cause. Your partner could be abusive. But given what you said, there's no indication of that necessarily. And so, you know, I'd go to a therapist and assess all that. All right, let's do one more. Patron Val says, I grew up in an abusive environment and built up a defense mechanism to protect myself. Now I am almost 40, and I find it very difficult to trust colleagues, friends, and romantic partners. I also tend to have a harsh directing style at work which sometimes is useful and other times harmful to my working relationships. This has all become a big part of my personality, but I really feel like being less defensive could ease my life. Is it possible to change? If so, how? End of email. Yeah, patron Val, it's great that you have that self-awareness. I commend you for that. Obviously, therapy is the answer, and in therapy you would recover from your abuse that you went through. It's a very complicated process, but... Through recovery from the abuse, meaning that you grieve the, um, the experience, it, it, that's the word I typically use is we have to grieve, you know, you cry and you get angry and you process and you talk about it. and maybe you recount certain events many, many times. This is assuming you don't have PTSD. And you, you know, you let it out and you get care and people hear, And with that recovery, you don't need the defense mechanism that you've built up to protect yourself as much anymore. It sounds like according to you, you you've built up a wall against other people and you, you don't let people in and you can be very harsh with people. Well, that was a, a, an important defense mechanism for you when you were young and it helped you, but you don't need it anymore. And so uh, recovering from the trauma will make you less scared and less in need of that defense. The other thing is just getting used to new behavior. Through therapy, you can talk about how to behave in different ways and how to get used to it. For example, at work, instead of being harsh, you can slow down and be—I don't know—be be, be more vulnerable or something. Or when you're in a relationship with someone and you're starting to feel yourself putting up the walls, instead of doing that, you say, "Hey, uh, what you did earlier—it kind of freaks me out, and I have an impulse to push away from you. But I'm in therapy right now, and I don't want to do that anymore, and I don't want to lose you as a friend." And you talk about that in therapy, and you learn how to do that. And over time, your body just learns, oh, this is actually a better way to do things. All right. Well, that does it for that episode. I I got to, uh, well, actually, there's only a few more questions. So let me actually power through this. Someone on the Facebook fan page said, I've always recommended the book, Why Does He Do That? by Lundy Bancroft. It's seen its seen by a lot of people as their best guide for how to understand and begin healing from their abuse. I think it's an excellent and well-founded book, but I do think it seems to miss some important things about how attachment and emotions drive our schemes and our attitudes. I think the ways this book lays out abuse patterns would be served by Kirk's analysis of personality attachment theory and human behavior. In particular, the section about the archetypes of abusers would be fantastic to get his take on. I think it's one of the parts of the book that's the most impactful for survivors. End of email. Yeah, uh, I do know that book. In fact, I think I have it on my shelf. Let me actually look behind me. Yeah, I have the book. It's called Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of an Angry and Controlling Man by Lindy Bancroft. I've had this book for a long time. I also have some other books that are related. I have... The Battered Woman by uh, Lenore Walker, which came out a long time ago, I believe, 1979. I think it's a sort of seminal book. Also, another book that is very popular is called Women Who Love Too Much by Robin Norwood. I have this book as well. Again, I think this this was a real popular paperback back in the day, 1985. Um, I also have a book called To Be an Anchor in the Storm, A Guide for Families and Friends of Abused Women by Susan Brewster, MSW, uh, published in 97, a little bit more recent. So this is a guide. So To Be an Anchor in the Storm. Then I also have a book called Against Rape by uh, Medea and Kathleen Thompson. And this, I believe, is the 80s as well. Uh, wait, where is it? Here we go. 74. So it's a, a, another, I think, popular book for the time. This The tagline is, a, a Survival Manual for Women, How to Avoid Entrapment and How to Cope with Rape Physically and Emotionally. So uh, those are books that are related to the Why Does He Do That book, for sure. Um, And I think all these books are good, and there's many, many others as well. But yeah, absolutely I agree that these books almost never uh, go into uh, uh, what—I mean, well, the books are great, and the books have a lot of wonderful um, guidance and normalization and healing about them. So I'm not saying that they're not useful, but often in the books they don't talk about— Why people are abusive and they don't conceptualize it. And maybe for a good reason, maybe it's just like, look, you know, these people aren't at the stage of forgiveness or understanding why people do what they do. But I think it does help, honestly. I don't know about you all, but when I have been abused, when I've been mistreated, and I'm in the throes, well, maybe it's not necessarily in the throes of the pain, but Afterwards, I find that I benefit overall from the conceptualization of why people develop this kind of behavior. That it's a defense against various different things, and they are not necessarily evil individuals. There are evil individuals, as I've been saying, but but when I conceptualize them that way, it helps. It helps me to feel safer in the world. It helps me to feel like, oh, they're suffering a lot, and I don't need to get revenge on them, because if they're doing that to me, and if they're doing that to me because of the reasons I think they're doing it to me, they're probably very lonely, and they're suffering quite a bit, and I kind of feel bad for them now. I I feel bad for me, too. I, I went through some very horrible times, and I don't want to be near that person because of that reason, but... I, you know, I see the situation as this, you know, ongoing chain of, of, uh, of abuse, you know, Uh, the person who abused me, well, they were systematically abused throughout their childhood by their dad, and their dad was systematically abused throughout his childhood, and, you know, and so on and so on. And somehow, for some reason, that is comforting uh in the in within the pain and within the grief and within the recovery process when i see it that way that's a, a there's a comfort to that and it feels more accurate and it it at the very least it provides an explanation that feels satisfying to me and i can sort of walk away from the situation without sort of mulling it over it's like why did this happen why did this happen well, i'm like well There's been an ongoing revolving slate of abuse that gets passed down through the generations, and eventually you get in the crosshairs of one of those individuals, and then they get you. And it it hurts, and it's horrible, and it's it's probably going to happen again, but it's just kind of how the world works. All right, to close it out, Colin provided a number here for people to call. If you think that someone is being abused in your life, you can call Monday through Friday 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 1-800-994-9662. That's 1-800-994-9662. This is the OWH hotline, which Colin has here in the notes saying that this is to, if you have someone in your life who is being abused and you want to help them from the outside, then you can call this line. All right. Well, it's been quite a journey with all your questions. And I feel like I need to, detoxify a little bit, not that you all have toxified me, but the discussions and all the memories of abuse in my life and uh, from clients to other people, I you know need to kind of shake that off a little bit. And I recommend you do the same or at least consider it. There's a lot of pain and a lot of trauma and a lot of fear and a lot of ongoing anxiety that's wrapped up in this. And we all have at least some of this, and some of us have a lot of this. And so it's important you take care of yourself. And really, this goes for all the episodes. Uh, You know, some of these episodes can be quite an ordeal for me, for you, for us. And it's real, and we don't want to avoid it, or at least I don't want to. But at the same time, we need to recognize the human toll that all this takes on us and take care of ourselves and go hug our people and our animals and take a walk or relax or something and just recognize that life has pain and tragedy and unfairness and trauma and abuse and you know it it's it's real and I, i'm with you and i know you're with me and take care of yourself and take care of others because we all deserve it we really really do